I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we look at scripture in context to grasp hold of the things that are not explicitly said, but are hiding just beneath the surface. Deuteronomy is a book that once again, is a bit difficult for modern audiences to connect to. We want excitement and miracles. We want war and battle. We want thoughtful insights into our own hearts and the nature of God. And Deuteronomy does have this, but not a whole lot. The fact is that Deuteronomy is primarily a long list of rules and regulations. And as we spoke of last week, it reads like an ancient treaty. This book is the ancient equivalent of a legal document that outlines the expected relationship between Israel and their God. Boring. And here at the beginning of the book, we are treated to a history lesson. And that history, it's not new, it's a repeat. It's the same history that we read just one book ago. The first few verses of the book, they're a preamble, simply setting the stage for the book. The place of the creation of this book, the people involved in the creation of this document, and the time frame of when the words that are recorded here were initially spoken. Then the rest of the first chapter is a recount of the events between Mount Sinai and Kadesh Barnea, chapters 10 through 14 of Numbers. And as we examined this chapter last week, however, we saw that there was a focus that was placed on these events, the failures of the people of Israel, and, in stark contrast, the faithfulness of Hashem in relationship to them. This first chapter of the book painting Israel in a dismal light, rebellious and treacherous, actively acting contrary to the commands that they had been given, allowing the world around them to cause them fear, their eyes and ears being the primary source of information, their minds being the primary interpreters of that information that was given to them, human logic and understanding determining the outcome of their trip. And when Israel acted in this way, they failed. Not just failed to act, they actively rebelled. They acted contrary to the commands that they had been given. And as we saw last week, this book takes the form of a suzerain vassal treaty. And this form being used for this document sets up Hashem in the role of high king and Israel as vassals. And so when Israel is called out for the rebellion twice in the first chapter, the rebellion is not simply the ephemeral disobedience to a god. It is the real intangible disobedience and rebellion against a king. This book moves the relationship between humans and God from the nebulous and the unknowable and drops it squarely into the realm of human law, authority, respect, and honor. In previous examples of human relationships, that of a husband and a wife and father and children, there were always those who disrespect these relationships. There was and even is no one-size-fits-all way of acting in these relationships. 
There is an uneven expectation as people grow, and there are ways of manipulation that will give either party what they want. But in the realm of kings and subject, the relationship solidifies somewhat. The expectation collapses, and there is one way of responding and acting in relationship to a king. A king is obeyed without question. A king is honored above all others. A king demands tribute, and you simply pay, whether you like it or not. A king owns all things and allows those under him to occupy his land. A king protects from invaders, fights at the front of the army, and is always on the battlefield with his troops. A king is who Hashem is now pictured as being, and Israel, in their beginning, was rebellious to their king. And so there was a decree and a judgment, and the people sat in place for a long time until that judgment was carried out. But this week, judgment is over. Israel is on the move again. And this week, we read of the travels of Israel as they made their way from Kadesh Barnea to Shittim. The enemy within Israel has been defeated, the rebellion and treachery. The kingdom has been solidified and unified behind their new king. Now it's time to address the enemies on the outside. Those who would stand in opposition to this fledgling nation that only a generation ago was slaves. Now Israel is an army behind their king general. Now comes the battles. The fighting begins. Now it's time to address the enemy without. So let's read this Parsha and then dig into this topic of the enemy that opposes our king. Deuteronomy 2, 1-3, Then we turned and set out into the wilderness, the way of the Sea of Reeds, as Hashem spoke to me, and we went round Mount Seir many days. And Hashem spoke to me, saying, You have gone round this mountain long enough. Turn northward, and command the people, saying, You are about to pass over into the border of your brothers, the descendants of Esau, who live in Seir. And they are afraid of you, so be on your guard. Do not strive with them, for I do not give you any of their land, not so much as one footstep, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. What food you buy from them with silver, you shall eat, and also what water you buy from them with silver, you shall drink. For Hashem your Elohim has blessed you in all your work of your hands, and he has known your wandering through this great wilderness. These forty years Hashem your Elohim has been with you, and you have not lacked any matter. And when we passed beyond our brothers, the descendants of Esau who dwell in Seir, away from the way of the desert plain, away from Eloth and Etzion, Gever, we turned and passed over by way of the wilderness of Moab. And Hashem said to me, Do not distress Moab, nor stir yourself up against them in battle, for I do not give you any of their land as a possession, because I have given Ar to the descendants of Lot as a possession. The Emites had dwelt there formerly, as people as great and as numerous and tall as the Anakim, and they were also reckoned as Rephaites, like the Anakim, but the Moabites called them Emites. And the Horites formerly dwelt in Seir, but the descendants of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them, and dwelt in their place as Israel did to the land of their possession which Hashem gave them. Now rise up and pass over the Wadi Zered. So we passed over the Wadi Zered. And the time we took to come from Kadesh Barnea until we passed over the Wadi Zared was thirty-eight years, until all the generation of the men of battle was consumed from the midst of the camp, as Hashem had sworn to them. And also the hand of Hashem was against them to destroy them from the midst of the camp until they were consumed. And it came to be when all the men of battle had finally perished from among the people, that Hashem spoke to me, saying, 
This day you are to pass over at Ar, the boundary of Moab. And when you come near the children of Ammon, do not distress them, nor stir yourself up against them. For I do not give you any of the land of the children of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the descendants of Lot as a possession. That was also reckoned as a land of Rephites. Rephites formerly dwelt there, but the Ammonites called them Zamzumim. A people as great and numerous and tall as the Anakim, but Hashem destroyed them before them, and they dispossessed them and dwelt in their place, as he had done from the descendants of Esau who dwelt in Seir, when he destroyed the Horites from before them. They dispossessed them and dwelt in their place, even to this day. And the Avim who dwelt in the villages as far as Azah, the Kaftorim who came from Kafor, destroyed them and dwelt in their place. Arise, set out, and pass over the Wadi Arnon. See, I have given into your hand Sihon the Amorite, king of Hashban, and his land. Begin to possess it, and stir up yourself against him in battle. This day I begin to put the dread of fear of you upon the peoples under all the heavens, who, when they hear the report of you, shall tremble and shake because of you. Then I sent messengers from the wilderness of Kedemot to Sihon the king of Hashban, with words of peace, saying, Let me pass through your land on the highway. I shall go on the highway and turn neither to the right nor to the left. What food you sell me for silver I shall eat, and what water you give me for silver I shall drink. Only let me pass over on foot, as the descendants of Esau who dwelt in Seir and the Moabites who dwelt in Ar did for me, until I pass over the Jordan, to the land Hashem our Elohim is giving us. Besichon, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass over, for Hashem, your Elohim, hardened his spirit and strengthened his heart to give him into your hand as it is this day. And Hashem said to me, See, I have begun to give Sichon and his land over to you. Begin to possess in order to possess his land. And Sichon and all his people came out against us to fight us at Yahatz. And Hashem, our Elohim, gave him over to us. So we struck him and his sons and all his people. And we took all his cities at that time, and we put the men, women, and little ones of every city under the ban. We left none remaining. Only the livestock we took as plunder for ourselves, and the spoil of the cities which we captured. From Aroer, which is on the edge of the Wadi Arnon, and the city that is by the Wadi as far as Galad, there was not one city too high for us. Hashem our Elohim gave all to us. Only you did not go near the land of the children of Ammon, anywhere along the Wadi Yabak or to the cities of the mountains, or anywhere, as Hashem your Elohim commanded us. Then we turned and went up the way to Bashan, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us, and all his people to battle at Edrei. And Hashem said to me, Do not fear him, for I have given him and all his people and his land into your hand, and you shall do to him as you did to Sichon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt in Heshbon. So Hashem our Elohim also gave into our hands Og, the king of Bashan, with all his people, and we struck him until he had no survivors remaining. And we captured all his cities at that time. There was not a city which we did not take from them, sixty cities, all in the district of Argov, the king of Og and Bashan. All these cities were fenced with high walls, gates, and bars, besides a great many unwalled towns. And we put them under the ban, as we did to Sichon, the king of Heshbon, putting the men, the women, and the children of every city under the ban. But all the livestock and the spoil of the cities we took as booty for ourselves, and at that time we took the land from the hand of the two kings of the Amorites that was beyond the Jordan, from the Wadi Arnon to Mount Hermon. Sidonians call Hermon Sirion, and the Amorites call it Sanir. All the cities of the plain, all Gilad and all Bashan, as far as Salcha, 
and Adrai, cities of the kingdom of Og and Bashan. For only Og, king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaites. See, his bedstead was an iron bedstead. Is it not in Rabat of the children of Ammon? Nine cubits is its length, and four cubits its width, according to the cubit of a man. And this land which we possessed at that time from Ararar, which is by the Wadi Arnon, and half the mountains of Gilad, and its cities, I give to the Reuvenites and the Gadites. And the rest of Gilad and all Bashan, the kingdom of Og, I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh, all the district of Argov, with all Bashan, called the land of the Rephaites. Yair the son of Manasseh had taken all the district of Argod as far as the border of the Geshurites and the Maacatites, and called them after his own name, the Bashan of Havot Yair to this day. And to Machir I gave Gilad, and to the Reuvenites and the Gadites I gave from Gilad as far as the Wadi Arnon, the middle of the Wadi as the border, as far as the Wadi Yabak, the border of the children of Ammon, and the desert plain with the Jordan as the border from Kinneret as far as the Sea of the Arabah, the salt sea below the slopes of the Pisgah on the east. And I commanded you at that time, saying, Hashem, your Elohim, has given you the land to possess. All of your sons of might pass over armed before your brothers, the children of Israel. But let your wives and your little ones and your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, stay in your cities which I have given you, until Hashem has given you rest to your brothers as to you, and they also possess the land which Hashem, your Elohim, is giving them beyond the Jordan. Then you shall return, each man to his possession, which I have given you. And I commanded Yehoshua at that time, saying, Your eyes have seen all that Hashem, your God, has done to these two kings. Hashem does the same to all the kingdoms which are passing over. Do not fear them, for Hashem, your God, himself, fights for you. The beginning of the book of Deuteronomy retells much of the narrative from the book of Numbers. Last chapter was the narrative up to the spies and the judgment that was passed down in chapter 14. But it also contained the episode of Moses being rejected from the land that did not occur until chapter 20. So we can set the time frame of chapter 1 as from the departure of Mount Sinai to the departure from Kadesh. And chapter 2 then picks up from there, from the departure from Kadesh to the east side of the Jordan, and it begins with Israel making their way around the land of Edom. From Kadesh south along the way of the Sea of Reeds, Israel spends many days making their way around Mount Seir, until Hashem told them to turn northward once again. And once again, just as we saw last week, there is a lot more detail contained here in this chapter than what we read of in the book of Numbers. And there were a lot of details that were contained in the book of Numbers that we don't read of here. There is no mention of the king of Arad or the episode with the bronze serpent here. And there are a few things mentioned here that perhaps seem a bit contradictory to what we read in Numbers. So first, let's spend a little time examining these historical events. First off, verse 4, Israel is warned that they are about to enter into the land of Edom. And they are told that as they go, they are not to fight Edom or steal from them. But if we turn back to Numbers, it was the refusal of Edom to allow Israel to cross their borders that caused Israel to have to go the long way around in the first place. So what's going on here? Well, if we look at what we know of ancient geography, it appears as though Edom stretched all the way down to the shores of the Gulf of Arabah, the Red Sea of the narrative. On their initial trip to Kadesh Barnea, Israel would have traveled along the western border of Edom. But now that they are forced to go around in order to get to the east side of Edom, Israel would either have to cross the sea once again, or cut through Edom at the point where Edom meets the sea. 
and it appears as though God chose the second option for them. Pass through the land of Edom at its thinnest point in the valley of Arabah in order to get to the east side and then travel back up on the eastern border of Edom. And why is Israel forbidden from taking any land in Edom? Because the land had been given to Edom as a possession. They are relatives of Israel, and Hashem has blessed Edom as well. Then Israel gets to Moab, and Israel is told not to distress Moab and not to go into battle against Moab, because the land that they occupy has been given to them because they are descendants of Lot. Now this introduces a potential conundrum. If we don't read Numbers 21-24 through carefully, we might assume that Israel fought and perhaps even defeated Moab at that time. These chapters feature Moab heavily, and there is a lot of war and battle that goes on in there. But when we look at it in light of Deuteronomy, we discover something else going on. When we read Numbers 21 carefully, Israel passes through the land of Moab, but the land was not currently ruled by Moab. Sihon of the Amorites had captured Moab, and they had become vassals to Sihon. So when we get to the part about fighting Sihon and defeating him, we discover that in this action, Israel was freeing Moab from an oppressive conqueror. But contrary to ancient Near East practice, defeating the conqueror did not transfer rulership to the Savior. Israel did not get to make vassals out of Moab simply because they defeated Sihon, as would have happened normally. Israel was to leave them alone and let them be autonomous after this. Now, in Numbers 22, we discover that after the defeat of Sihon, the king of Moab is afraid of Israel, and so he hires Balaam to curse Israel. What the king of Moab did not realize was that Israel had no intention of invading and replacing Sihon as their suzerain nation. The fears that Moab have are completely unfounded, and the motivation for cursing Israel in the first place was baseless. While in Numbers we examined how Hashem protected Israel from the curse of Balaam, and how he acted to turn the curses into blessing. But now, with the rest of the story, we discover that Hashem was protecting Moab as well. He intended for Moab to have this land, and Israel was not going to move against them. But the suspicion and the lack of trust on the part of Moab caused them to become an enemy of Israel in the end. Moab did curse Israel by getting them to commit adultery and idolatry. But Moab did not act alone in this. They allied with Midian to accomplish this act. And so in Numbers 31, when vengeance is taken for this offense, one nation is suspiciously absent in that vengeance. Moab is not on the list of who Israel was to attack. Even though Moab was intimately involved, Israel was not to take vengeance on Moab. Only Midian was attacked. And it is because of this command that we read of here in chapter 2 of Deuteronomy that we discover why that is. And then as a closeout of this peaceful passage passage, as I call it, a command is given not to distress the Ammonites. Once again, the land that they occupy is the land that has been given to them by Hashem. It is a gift to the descendants of Lot, just as Canaan is a gift to the descendants of Jacob. And these asides, they help us to see that Hashem did indeed set the borders of the nations as Deuteronomy 32 claims. And as a corollary, we discover in a few of the asides that are contained in this chapter that Hashem also uses these nations to accomplish his goals. 
Verses 10 through 12 recount how the several nations used to dwell in these lands surrounding Canaan, but they were defeated and driven out for the most part by the nations who were inheriting their own possession. And here is where we get all of the names of the nations that were similar to the Anakim, and they would fall under the classification of Nephilim. Back in Numbers 13, it was the presence of the Anakim in the land of Canaan that caused Israel to react in fear and avoid going into the land of Canaan. Numbers 13, 32-33 And they gave the children of Israel an evil report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land eating up its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. And we saw there the Nephilim, sons of Anak of the Nephilim. And we were like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and so we were in their eyes. Anakim were Nephilim, according to Israel's understanding. They were men of great size and powerful, and so Israel did not proceed in the conquest. The enemy that chapter 1 hinted at, that caused the fear and the rebellion of Israel, this enemy is who used to inhabit the lands surrounding Israel as well. In fact, they used to live in Seir. But Hashem caused Edom to destroy them, them and all their cousins, the Emites, who are as tall and as numerous as the Anakim. They're also called the Rephaim and the Anakim, but the Moabites called them the Emites and the Horites as well. But you know what? Edom defeated them. They took their land that Hashem had given them as a possession, while Israel failed to take their own possession. And the land of Ammon? Well, it was previously inhabited by the Rephaim, who the Ammonites called the Zamzumim, and they were as tall as the Anakim as well. But guess what? Ammon destroyed them and dispossessed them as well, defeating giants and overcoming the odds with Hashem's help, while Israel sat disobedient in the wilderness. This first part of chapter 2 provides several awesome images that we would do well to learn from. First off, the idea of boundaries that we spoke of a few weeks back. We see this idea in action here. The boundaries of the nations have been set by Hashem. Israel was not to overflow their boundaries and seek to occupy the lands of other nations, because those nations have been given their boundaries by Hashem as well. Second, God is capable of using nations that are not part of His covenant people in order to accomplish His purposes. Every nation is a tool in his hands. Edom, Moab, Ammon, these nations were caused to be victorious because Hashem purposed it. Just like Nebuchadnezzar was a tool of judgment and punishment over Israel, and Darius was a tool of judgment and punishment over Babylon, so too any nation can be used to judge a nation that has reached the limits of the sin that Hashem will allow. Third, God also gives gifts and possessions to those who are not his covenant people. We talk about the promised land as if it is unique, and the Hebrews as if they are unique recipients of gifts from God. But as we see here, these other nations had lands that were their promised land, their own inheritance from Hashem. Perhaps not as great as Israel was, not as abundant and overflowing with the potential as Canaan, but an inheritance nonetheless. And this opening of chapter 2 sets up the remainder of the chapter and part of the next, because Israel then goes to war. The first victory is to be found as they begin to do as these other nations did, defeat the giants and destroy these fallen kingdoms. First up, 
the Sichon, which we read of in Numbers and which we have already discussed today, a conqueror from another nation who had conquered and was ruling over the land of Moab. Hashem told Israel to defeat Sichon. Hashem put the dread of Israel on Sichon. And yet when Israel gets to the border, how do they first approach Sichon? They approach with terms of peace. Let us pass through your land. We will not depart from the highway, and we will pay for everything that we consume. We will pass through peacefully as we have through Seir and the lands of Moab. Now, this is something that is important to recognize that this type of approach is something that is commanded later in the book, Deuteronomy chapter 20, 10-17. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, then you shall make a call for peace to it. And it shall be that if it accepts your call for peace and shall open to you, then all the people found in it are to be your compulsory labor and serve you. But if it does not make peace with you and shall fight against you, then you shall besiege it. And Hashem your Elohim shall give it into your hands, and you shall strike every male in it with the sword. Only the women and the little ones and the livestock and all that is in the city, all its spoiled, do you take as plunder for yourself. And you shall eat the enemy's plunder which Hashem your Elohim gives you. Do so to all the cities which are very far from you, which are not the cities of these nations. Only the cities of the people which Hashem your God gives you as an inheritance, you do not keep alive any that breathe, but you shall certainly put them under the ban. The Hittite, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Perizzite, and the Chivite, and the Yevusite, as Hashem your Elohim has commanded you. When you come to a city that does not belong to one of these six nations, were to be conquered without offering terms of peace. Why? Because the Nephilim, the giants that inhabited the land, were to be wiped out. For these nations there appears to have been no quarter given. No peace was to be made with these nations. The only result that there could be was death. Why? Because these nations had reached the fullness of judgment for one. And two, it appears as though wiping these giant races from the earth was one of the primary goals of the conquest. This appears to be why the Torah spends so much time on these nations, and why Deuteronomy here in the beginning spends so much time on these races, while the rest of the Bible seems to completely gloss them over. Well, as we know, because we've read the story, Sichon does not accept this arrangement of peaceful passage through his land, and so he comes out to fight, and in the end, to die. And when Israel takes his cities, what do they do? They put these cities under the ban. Why? Sichon was an Amorite king, and one of the nations that was to be given no quarter in Deuteronomy 20 is the Amorites. And Israel took the land right up to the border of the Ammonites, a nation that was not to be touched. And then in chapter 4, the battle continues. Israel goes into Bashan and Og. The king of Bashan arrays himself for battle against Israel as well. And just as before, Israel goes to war and wins. And once again, Israel destroys the people of Bashan. All of them. There were no survivors. Now, why this one? Bashan isn't one of those nations that's listed that's to be put under the ban. So why kill everyone in this nation? Well, the answer to that question is what leads me to believe that the conquest of Canaan is about more than simply giving Israel the land and kicking the other out but it's rather an extermination of the giant races. And the answer is found in verse 11. Og appears to have been the last survivor of the Rephaim, 
one of those races that we read of previously that was connected to the Anakim, which were connected to the Nephilim. In fact, here in Deuteronomy 3, we get the only idea in all of the Bible of just how big these man-like creatures were. The bed of Og was iron, so it was sturdy, and it could handle a lot of weight, and its size was 9 cubits by 4 cubits. Now, if we take the easy measurement of a cubit being a foot and a half, even though it went anywhere from 18 to 21 inches, depending on where you were in the land at the time, we'll go with the easy foot and a half. The bed was 13 and a half feet by 6 feet. Now, that is a massive amount of real estate for sleeping. But our Western minds scream, well, this is only mentioning the size of the bed, not the size of Og. Perhaps Og liked a king of kings sized bed. But that makes no sense when we consider that these nations were called large and great and tall and giants. The text doesn't go out of its way to describe the enormous sleeping arrangements of a normal sized man while connecting him to those who Israel was afraid of because of their size. The text is making a point of giving us an idea of just how big this man actually was. And then the lands of Og and the lands of Sichon are split up among the tribes that requested to settle the lands on the east side of the Jordan. The first bit of the inheritance is being given to those who desired to receive it early. Here in Deuteronomy, the only real addition that we find to this episode is that it is made very clear that the land that was split between these two and a half tribes is what they took from Sichon and Og. The land that they took from Midian was not theirs, and they did not get to occupy any of the land of Moab either, despite the fact that Moab led Israel to curse themselves. And that ends the text of the Parsha for this week. Now as we go through this text, there is one thing that is highlighted throughout the various sections of the text, and that is the overwhelming nature of the enemy that Israel is facing. An enemy that is numerous and powerful and frightening an enemy that needs to be wiped out, and frankly, an enemy that we're not given a whole lot of information about in Scripture, but at the same time, it is an enemy that we are tasked at going to war against. You see, we can sit at Deuteronomy 1 our entire lives. We can sit and deal with the enemy that we find inside ourselves. We can deal with our own sin and our own failures, and in doing so, never take on the enemy that exists outside of ourselves. We can even sit in the Torah our whole lives. We can learn about God. We can learn about ourselves. We can engage in worship. We can enter into relationship and never proceed to Joshua. But all of this, the story of the Torah, is not for the purpose of staying in the Torah. The purpose is to go to war, to move from Deuteronomy 1 to Deuteronomy 2 and 3, to move from the Torah to Joshua to win the battle we face inside and then move it outward into the world. This is the model of our king. So let's create a profile of what we do know of our enemy. Let's examine this enemy that we face, the one that is outside of us, the enemy that is opposed to Hashem, and the enemy that we are to give no quarter. We're never given a name for the enemy. Now, there are many who use the name Lucifer as a proper name for the ultimate enemy of Hashem, but that is a misnomer. You see, the name Lucifer comes from a specific verse in the Bible, Isaiah 14, 12. 
How you have fallen from heaven, O Hallel, the son of the morning. How you have been cut down to the ground, you who have laid low the nations. Now that name Hallel is a word that simply means shining one. It's a word that appears only once in the Bible, and it finds its root in the word halal, which means to shine or to boast or to be boastful. This word could just as easily mean boastful one rather than shining one, but I digress. So when the translators of the Latin Vulgate and the early Latin translation of the Bible came across this verse, they stopped and paused for a moment. Who is the shining one? Who is in the heaven that shines brightly? What star is not always present, and so is thought to occasionally fall to the earth? Well, obviously it's the brightest star in the sky, a star that we know to be the planet Venus, a star that in Latin is named Lucifer, the bringer of light. And that is where the name for the enemy originates from. But if we examine Isaiah 14, the context of the passage is Babylon, and it's the king of Babylon that's the shining one that has fallen from the heavens. Perhaps this passage has nothing to do with the spiritual being that we have named Lucifer. In other places in scripture, the enemy is known simply by a title, Hasatan, the adversary, a term that when first used is used to describe the angel of the Lord who is standing in opposition to Balaam in Numbers 22. And throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, this name sticks, but the New Testament, another name is given to this enemy in the Greek. Diabolos, a word that's often translated as devil, a word in Greek that means one who is slanderous or prone to slander or known to accuse falsely, the accuser of the brethren as he is known in Revelation 12.10. And it is here that we perhaps get a hint that Isaiah 14 may be using a literary device known as synecdoche, speaking of a whole way of referring to a single part to speak of someone who is merely represented by the king of Babylon. Revelation 12.10 And I heard a loud voice saying in the heavens, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been thrown down. The word used for the accuser here is not diabolos, instead it's categorios. A word that's used to describe one who stands before a judge and makes an accusation against another. And then in Zechariah chapter 3, we find this in verses 1 through 3. And he showed me Yehoshua, the high priest, standing before the messenger of Hashem, and Satan standing at his right hand to be an adversary to him. And Hashem said to Satan, Hashem rebuke you, Satan. Hashem, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? And Joshua was dressed in filthy garments and was standing before the messenger. The angel of the Lord and the Satan. And the Satan is acting as the accuser of the high priest, Joshua. Now, this is not the same Joshua as the servant of Moses. And other than symbolically, it's not Yeshua either. Rather, it's the first high priest to serve in the temple after it was rebuilt after the Babylonian captivity. We also read of this man in Ezra, Nehemiah, and Haggai as well. And so in Zechariah, we find that the accuser is Satan. And in Revelation 12, we are clearly shown that the devil is the same as Satan himself. Revelation 12, 9. And the great dragon was thrown out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who leads all the world astray. And he was thrown to the earth, and his messengers were thrown out with him. And is this enemy that will be destroyed in the final battle. 
Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil who led them astray was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they shall be tortured day and night forever and ever. Okay, I I know, that was the long way around. But we need to be sure that we understand the scriptural precedent for this character. The adversary, the one who opposes, and the accuser, the one who slanders and casts false accusations. This is our enemy. Now, is this a singular character? The presence of the definitive the before the title leads us to believe that this is indeed a singular being, just as we recognize that the definitive before the angel of the Lord describes a singular being as well. And we can then understand Hasatan as one who then oversees other beings with the same goal. Now, this enemy is not one that is tangible. You cannot simply reach out and touch the adversary. Instead, the enemy is one that is spiritual, as Paul says in Ephesians. Ephesians 6.12 Because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against authorities, against the world rulers of darkness in this age, against spiritual matters of wickedness in the heavenlies. Our adversary is composed of principalities, plural, authorities, plural, rulers of the darkness of this age, plural, and spiritual matters of wickedness in the heavenlies, plural. Our adversary, while being led by a singular, is composed of a plurality, spiritual forces that have set themselves up against the God of heaven. And our weapons in this fight, they're not fleshly either. In Ephesians 6, Paul goes on to describe the armor of God, an armor that is composed of ideals. And these ideals are not things that are to be put on over and over again. They are ideals that are to be put on as part of our way of life. The same way that we put on the new man, as Paul speaks of earlier in Ephesians 4.24 and in Colossians 3.10. The way that we put on this armor is that we begin to act according to the ideals that the armor describes. Truth, righteousness, preparedness to share the gospel, faith, salvation, and practice in the word of God. With these, we have the equipment to fight. Because 2 Corinthians 10, 3-6 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not fight according to the flesh. For the weapons we fight with are not fleshly, but mighty in God for overthrowing strongholds, overthrowing reasonings, and every high matter that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, taking captive every thought to make it obedient to Messiah, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is complete. Once we have learned obedience and destroyed the heart of rebellion within us, then we can take up the weapons of our warfare and begin to overthrow strongholds and reasonings. Uh, Logissimos, the, the origin of our word logic, it's the very thing that caused Israel to fail in Numbers 13. And every matter that exalts itself against God. And with these weapons we can fight the battle before us. But no fight is complete without the authorization and authority to go to war. And this charge comes from our suzerain. This authority comes from our king. When Yeshua led his disciples and taught them, when they were ready, he gave them a task and a charge. Go to war. As part of their training, this is what they were to do. Luke 9, 1-5 
And having called his twelve disciples together, he gave them power and authority over all demons and to heal disease. And he sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he said to them, Take no matter at all for the journey, neither staffs, nor bag, nor bread, nor silver. Neither have two undergarments, and whatever house you enter, stay there and go out from there. And as for those who do not receive you, when you go out of that city, shake off the dust from your feet as a witness against them. As he sent them out, Yeshua gave them authority to wage war. And in the related passage in Matthew, he gave them the boundaries in which they were to fight their war, only to the lost sheep of Israel. And the disciples were to practice warfare in the wilderness. Their daily bread delivered to them by God, and their clothing which would not wear out, preaching the gospel and bringing the new creation with them. Destroy the enemy as you encounter him. And then later in Luke, we read that this exercise increased. No longer twelve sent out to wage war, but seventy, or seventy-two, sent out to practice in the same way. Luke 10, 1-9, And after this the master appointed seventy others and sent them two by two ahead of him into every city and place where he himself was about to go. Then he said to them, The harvest indeed is great and the workers are few. Therefore pray the master of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Go, see, I send you as lambs in the midst of wolves. Do not take a purse, nor a bag, nor sandals, and greet no one along the way. And whatever house you enter, first say, Peace to this house. And if indeed a son of peace is there, your peace shall rest on it, and if not, it shall return to you. And stay in the same house, eating and drinking whatever with them, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not move from house to house, and into whatever city you enter, and they receive you, eat whatever is placed before you, and heal the sick there, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. The same charge, but now a larger force being sent out. And when they returned, we read this in Luke ten seventeen through 20 And the seventy returned with all joy, saying, Master, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan falling out of heaven as lightning. See, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all of the power of the enemy, and none at all shall hurt you. But do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names have been written in the heavens. The demons are subject to us, they declare. We have been given the authority to trample serpents and scorpions and over all of the power of the enemy. And this is a truth in our lives as well. And then after the resurrection, this charge was given to all who would become disciples of the Master. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen through 20 And Yeshua came up to them and said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to guard all that I have commanded you. And see, I am with you always until the end of the age. Amen. All authority has been given to Yeshua. And that power and authority has been passed on to his disciples. Luke twenty four forty six through 49 And he said to them, Thus it has been written. And so it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and to rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these matters. And see, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to remain in the city of Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. 
You see, it's all too easy to sit in Deuteronomy 1. It's all too easy to simply camp in Kadesh Barnea, to work to put to death the old man in our lives, to overcome the rebellion and treachery that's in our hearts, to internalize our relationship with Hashem, and to never let it see the light of day outside of ourselves. But that is not our charge. We are not to simply sit in the wilderness of change forever. We are to learn from the wilderness. We are to clothe ourselves in the armor in the process. We are to practice with our weapons. And then we are to go to war. The enemy? The enemy is huge. The enemy is larger than life. They are fearful and they are frightening. And they are subject to us. Despite their size and their power, they are afraid of us. I can attest to this from my own experience with deliverance ministry. The enemy is scared of repentant, righteous, faithful, trusting warriors who are acquainted with their weapons, those who walk in the authority that has been granted to overcome the enemy. So let's not get comfortable in the wilderness of existence, fighting the same old battles within ourselves over and over and rarely finding victory. Let's work towards moving out of Deuteronomy 1 and into Deuteronomy 2. Let's work towards moving out of the Torah in our lives and reestablishing over and over the elementary matters of our faith. Let's move into Joshua and the battle for the kingdom of God outside of ourselves. Let's get ready to fight for our God and our King. Because life requires energy and struggle. And so we must be sure that we struggle for the right things as we dare shai, as we seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Daresh Chai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. The music was provided by the Exodus Road Band. Check them out on iTunes or ExodusRoadBand.com. We'll see you again next time as we Daresh Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.